Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Renee Powers. Renee, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm super excited. This is one of those interviews where I don't know a whole lot, so we could go anywhere with this thing, and that's kind of fun. Uh-huh. So tell me, Renee, first, what do you do right now? Who are you? So I am located in Minneapolis. I just moved here from Chicago, where I spent the last 10 years. I work for myself. I'm a feminist life coach and podcaster. So my podcast is called Wild Cozy Truth and it's very similar. We talk, I talk to women about their stories, the places that hurt, the, um, the transitions that have brought them to where they are now. And I strongly believe that telling your story and listening to other people's stories is inherently empowering and we can learn so much. So that's what the Wild Cozy Truth podcast is all about. Um, it's my platform for telling women's stories. And um, individually, I work one-on-one with women in transition, particularly millennial women. I am a millennial, and I think that there are some really sticky and unique um, issues that come up in the context of millennial women. So um, I help them through transitions. And another hat that I have is the um, Wild Cozy Truth Women's Circle and Book Club, which is an online feminist book club. So um, we just meet once a month and we talk via Zoom, which is what you and I are doing right now. (laughs) Yep, Yep. we love the Zoom. Yep, it's an online support group and it's an online book club. So it covers both the bases. We've got women from all walks of life talking about feminist issues, femininity, sexuality, sensuality, and womanhood, and all that encompasses that. Holy cow. Yeah, so that's That's how I spend my day today. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So you you made some changes, but did you you didn't grow up in Chicago? No, I grew up um, in South Bend, Indiana, which is about a hundred miles due east of Chicago, on the other side of Lake Michigan. So um, it's the home of Notre Dame. It's a a primarily blue collar town. um, When it's not when you get further away from the university. Now, so you grew up only child. Tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about growing up and what that was like. Yeah, I was, I'm an only child, um, which I love and hate. <laughs> I, um, yeah, we, I come from a very uh, middle class working, well, lower middle class working class family. Yeah. Um, my parents divorced when I was 12 and that made a really big impact on me. And the one thing that my mom told me after that divorce was you have to get your education um, because she didn't complete college and struggled uh, financially because of that. Um, mm. So what I heard as an overachieving type A young girl <laughs> was not only do you have to get your education, you have to get all the education possible. <laughs> oh no, that's, I mean, as a mom I of millennials, I uh-huh. don't think that's what we mean. No, no, but that's but, how I took it, right? right. Yeah. That's that, because I was already a chronic overachiever and um, 
and I was smart, you know, I was really self-aware and really good at school and I liked school. It yeah. provided a structure that I really thrived in. Um, and so, yeah, I was in the honors classes. I went on to St. Mary's, which is the women's college at Notre Dame and got my bachelor's degree and double majored and studied abroad. So I'm like excelling, excelling, excelling. I got a position with, um, a member of Congress. So I had like a .gov email address, thought I was really cool, left that position, went back to school um, after two years and got my master's degree. And then, you know, I really enjoyed academia at that time. And straight out of my master's, I went on to a PhD program. What were you majoring in? What were uh, your double majors? What was? Yeah, communication and gender studies. Okay. So um, I have a background in feminist theory. That's kind of my academic work is feminist theory and social media and the intersections of that. So <laughs> very interesting. It was interesting. And it was yeah. it, it, like, I had so many questions, right? In my master's program, I was able to answer all of those questions in the ways that felt right. And I was being super supported and again, excelling and getting all this positive feedback about my work and about me and about my teaching and that feels it wasn't, good. It felt great. Yeah. And that continued for maybe a couple of years into my PhD program, but I dropped out after six years. Is that all? Yeah, just six years. Just yeah. Six <laughs> casual all. years as a PhD candidate. Yeah. <laughs> so now I know we have very little um, information that went back and forth, but I know that you moved to Minneapolis mm -hmm. with your husband. Yeah. So uh, when did you guys meet and how did that all go? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned that I studied abroad. Uh, right. In 2006, I went abroad to Rome and spent a semester there and traveled there and um, did the whole like grand tour, backpacked Europe solo and basically drank my way across the continent. And <laughs> Good job. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the women on my program um, was a Notre Dame student who played in the marching band and we became really close. And when we got back to campus, so I went to the women's college at Notre Dame. And when we got back to campus, I started spending time with her and her friends. And turns out her best friend from the marching band was my husband, Joe. And it just happened that we started spending time together and, you know, doing silly college activities together, tailgates and hockey games and all sorts of things. And um, yeah, we moved into it, moved in together a couple years later in, after we graduated in 2008 and three months into living together, we were engaged and a year later we were married. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And you know what I tell, so I taught college students for a long time and I was 23 when I got married and I tell my college students who are around that age, listen, I did it. I married pretty young. I was a baby. We were both babies. I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. But it worked out really well for me. It's been really nice, um, especially, I think, a child of divorce. I think um, having someone in your corner to witness your story unfold is so important. And I didn't really have that growing up as an only right. child of divorce. Right. Yeah. I was alone and, a lot, and now I'm not. Yeah, that's hard. That's a tough thing. So also though the tough part i think about marrying young because i married very young and we got divorced before all the kids and all that stuff but you, if you're not growing up together 
you yeah. tend, I mean, all couples that come together and get married, you know, you can grow apart because yes. everything changes your interests, all kinds of stuff, right? Uh, when you're younger, that happens more because right. so much of your life and you really have to grow up together. Yeah. And that's one thing that we've really, we've struggled with, but we've come to this understanding now that when we're in our thirties and like we own a home and have jobs and are like adults for the first time is how it feels. We come to this understanding that we have to give each other space to be our own people and we have to accept each other at every stage in our lives. And it's going to take communication, a lot of communication. And it's going to take work. Marriage is not a passive activity. It's active. No, no and, it's not passive. <laughs> yeah. And it's something that we've really enjoyed working on and growing together because we've allowed each other to do that. So what was the feeling with your mom and with your husband when you're going for your PhD and then you're like, you know what? I think I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause when you were done, you were done. Yeah. 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 I dropped out and like never checked my email again. <laughs> yeah. That was it. Um, yeah. Well, so I was in the program for six years and honestly the last two of them, I, I this was just kind of a foregone conclusion for me that I, after, after four solid years of giving it all of my energy and not feeling the way I used to feel about it, feeling the way I used to feel about research or about teaching, um, I still get lit up by teaching. I still teach workshops and things like that, but it just wasn't the same. Something was missing and I didn't feel like myself anymore. And I didn't like who I became when I was in this academic role. And my husband could see that. Um, and so when the time come, the time came where I decided to just rip the bandaid off and say, I'm done. And this is the final straw. I'm actually done this time. Um, you know, <laughs> it was so weird. The, the thing that broke the camel's back was I had messed up my registration for the semester and I was supposed to register for 12 credit hours, but I only had registered for nine because dependent on certain fellowships and certain tuition waivers and things like, and it just, it was kind of a mess. And I had to submit three physical forms to just get more credit hours for the same class. So it was just dissertation research credits. I needed three more credit hours, but I had to submit these three different forms to do that. And it was a big deal with the university and I just decided this is such bullshit. I mean, yeah. there's so much red tape. This this seems so inefficient. And I'm living 500 miles away now. Like, I need somebody to mail me these forms, and I need to mail them back, and it's going to be a big thing. And I'm not going to get my tuition stipend and blah 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 blah. Um, so if that's what I was just like, you know what? No, I'm I'm out. You know, I'm done. Um, and it took three clicks to withdraw from the university online. Isn't that crazy? Three physical forms to give the university more money, essentially, but three That's clicks to withdraw completely. <laughs> and, and they're all like, oh, okay, see you later. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know. But for my mental health, I mean, every time I was opening up my dissertation draft, I just went to this deep, ugly depression and I didn't like myself and I didn't know myself. And I didn't recognize myself. So I, I, for that reason, my husband was super supportive because he could see that too. He could see that this isn't, this isn't the girl that I married, you know, yeah. she's smart and she's driven and she's full of life, but right now she's really not. And I struggle with anxiety uh, and panic disorder as well. And 
it was bringing up so much of that that I just, I, I wasn't healthy mentally or physically. So he was, he was supportive of that decision because he knew it was for the best. And he said that he would, you know, and I brought it up for years too. Like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this or I don't know if I want to finish this. And he's always said, I'll support you no matter what. Right. So you guys had moved during when you were in your PhD, you had moved to Minneapolis? Yeah. So, so tell I was, me about that. So I, um, it's actually really common at that level of um, the PhD is once you're done, once you're considered ABD, which is all but dissertation, a lot of students move away from the university and either take on adjunct positions or do field research somewhere. Um, and so we ended up in Minneapolis it was a good time for me because I didn't have to be on campus anymore. I was done teaching. I was done taking classes. I was done with all of like the weekly meetings kind of thing. Everything could be done remotely at that point. And we moved to Minneapolis because my husband is from Minneapolis and his parents are, my in-laws are retired and wanted to move into a, a retirement community, a co-op, a senior living co-op, I think is what they call it. It's actually really cool. <laughs> um, and that meant that the house that my husband grew up in was going to go for sale. And so we decided, well, we're very risk averse and we've never owned property. <laughs> we've never bought a house. So we thought, okay, well, this would be a really, really uh, easy way to buy a house because, well, not only will we get the family discount, <laughs> But we also know everything that has gone on in this house for the last 40 years. Yeah. Right. So there will, there will be surprises, but it's not like we're going to move in and need to replace the foundation. You right. know, it, I mean, we know that the work that's been done has been good work and, um, and there, and my in-laws are, have been really excited for us to kind of take over the reins and remodel and, you know, freshen it up and do good. things with it. Yeah. They've been really cool about it. Um, yeah, my, my mother-in-law bought it in the early 70s. So, and the last time I think it's been renovated was when Joe was born in the 80s. <laughs> so it needs a little TLC. But um, yeah, that's really what brought us here. We decided, okay, well, we're going to, this is the time. We knew we wanted to end up in Minneapolis. Um, it was just wonderful here. The community is here. Our families, his family is here. Um, I've got friends up here. And it was just a matter of when do we do that? And with this, this transition happening, my in-laws moving into the um, senior living facility, we started, well, my husband started looking for jobs. And um, the first one he applied to, he got. And so it was just kind of like, bang, bang, boom, here we go. I guess, you know, this is happening a lot more quickly than anybody anticipated, but we'll make it work. Um, and so that was in just this past November. November of 2017. Um, and yeah, I was still enrolled and I was enrolled in my program until February. So, so this, for, this just happened. Oh yeah. This is, oh yeah. <laughs> okay. I tend so to far. burn my life down, down like every five years. And this is just one of those transition years. Right. And, but the distance away from the program was just, it opened my eyes up to what my life could look like here because it wasn't what I wanted it to be. Now you already have your master's. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily need the, I mean, you never need a PhD. I don't need, I didn't need any of it. Right. 
it but was yeah. more just because initially you loved it and then yeah. you hit a point where you didn't. That's exactly. really hard for some people to do though, pull that plug, yeah. especially so close to the end. Yeah, but it was still like the finish line was ahead of me, but I'd already run into so many barriers yep. and so much red tape. And I just, I had failed this part that I was in two times already. And I was on the third iteration of my dissertation proposal, which is just yep. outrageous. Like the, there's, I was at this stage for a year and a half. There was no reason for that other than it's a really hard hazing process that you have to go through. Um, yeah, I don't remember where I was going with that. <laughs> so you, what are you doing? You got, you moved. So you're, this, this is like an enormous transition. Well, I have one question that might be funny. I mean, I right. think it's, I think it's, I think it's amusing. So what was it like for him to move into his childhood home and have the master <laughs> bedroom? Right, exactly. Is that um, weird? Like you're sleeping in your parents' room. I know it was, well, what we did was, um, we put the bed in a different place, which was a big part of it. <laughs> I, <laughs> Putting the, the bed in a different place, the I dressings get it. in a different place, and just like making it our own. But you know, even we both feel this way. Even um, just having our things, our furniture, and our style in that house makes it a different home. Completely. Because because this is something that my husband talks about buying his family home that he lived in the first fifteen mm -hmm. years, and I'm like. Well, I'd have to repaint. I won't have to burn part of it down. And, you know, right, right. <laughs> it would be, it would be, and I never spent time in it with him as a kid. It's not like mm -hmm. I even have any memory of that, but I know everything looks smaller and it's different from an ownership perspective. And mm -hmm. I imagine that that would be an interesting transition. Yeah, it has been. Um, but I have been a part of this home for the last 10 years, you know, yeah. like this has been the place where I've spent holidays and visited and I, it, it feels good. I mean, it's good. what I've always wanted. It's an older home. It has lots of history. It has lots of charm. It's in an incredible neighborhood. Like the neighbors, I didn't know neighborhoods like this existed anymore. Like I grew up in a very like suburban neighborhood where as long as you were home before the streetlights turned on, you were yeah. fine. Like it was safe. Somebody there were a ton of kids. You were out riding your bike somewhere or in somebody's house, like whatever. It was fine. I didn't know that existed anymore. I thought it was like Mr. Rogers neighborhood, but the moment we pulled up with the moving truck, somebody, the neighbor walked out of his house and just started unloading it. And we were like, what the hell? This is bizarre. And then, you know, three doors down, this family comes over with donuts and a six pack of beer. And we were just like, this is wild like I didn't know and these are this has been turnover since Joe lived there so these are like new people to him too yeah. um but they're just happy to have a young couple in the neighborhood because it's mostly again the turnover of my in-laws age into younger families and so it's just a really fun block and they do a lot of things and you know always shoveling out somebody's driveway <laughs> and taking care of one another and looking out for one another and yeah i've i've been really impressed with even the neighborhood itself so that's helped too because yeah. it's, that's new for joe that's new for me and it, yep. it feels like we're part of a community and laying down roots for the first time that's awesome now you have been in school off and on mostly mm -hmm. on for the last 10 years mm -hmm. 
So where, where did you feel like you fit in? How hard was that for you to transition and feel? I mean, you pulled a plug on your PhD, which is a pretty mm-hmm. big deal. Mm-hmm. And I applaud you for that. I'm not saying that with any um, negative critique. Yeah. But how was it for you to find your place? Because you were in one direction for so long. Yeah, yeah. How was that? Um, there's absolutely a loss of identity because I have been a student for so long, but you can't take away, there's parts of it that you'll never take away from me. Like I will always identify as an academic at heart. I love research, I love academic rigor and science and social science and all of that. I mean, that's all, I love big words, you know? (laughs) I love to write. So those are things that, will never go away. Um, and that's the lens through which I see the world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, I, I can't say like, oh, I'm a PhD candidate anymore, which I've said for the last six years, but I can say I'm a PhD dropout, which I think <laughs> is something that I've just started to own. I'm more than willing to talk about it because it's hard. And I think you don't hear that story as often. There's some statistic, and it's not correct off the top of my head, but it's something like 60% of PhD students don't go on to complete their PhD, like don't end up earning the PhD. Something really high. It's like more than than not, you're not going to complete it. Um, But you never hear those stories. You never hear people say, oh, yeah, well, I tried it for six years and it sucked. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with carrying that torch because I think it's a torch that needs to be carried. And how did you redirect? I know you've been doing other things while you were going to school. Yeah. But not the same as your, your gov email. Right, right. Um, so I got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug while I was still in school. Mm-hmm. I was working for um, an online women's wellness community. I was doing all the social media management just as a kind of side gig because you don't make money as a grad student. <laughs> so I needed to make a little cash somehow and feel like I'm contributing to my, ca- my household. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I started working for this company and it was just me and the founder running this whole thing. So I could see the ins and outs of it. I learned everything I know about running an online business from doing this job. Um, And I did that for a couple of years, almost three, I guess, and decided when that started to, we could kind of see the writing on the wall that it was going to be dissolving in the next few months. So um, I got the blessing from the founder to, to move on my own way and do my own thing. And And that was really the catalyst for wanting to explore other options outside of academia because the academic job market is screwed. I mean, you can't make a living doing it anymore and you have to be willing to go anywhere in the world to do it. And I wasn't, I wasn't willing to go to Qatar to teach. So, um, yeah, I decided, well, I love being in control. (laughs) So let me see if I can control my own future by creating my own, my own space online. Just, let's just see what that looks like. And because I'm an 
internet researcher and social media junkie, the first thing I did was create a vision board on Pinterest. <laughs> hey, those are the best. Do not, do not, di we are not going to diss the Pinterest vision. I have. Oh, uh, hell no. I love it. Oh, I love it because it, like in my day, we used to gather magazines and cut stuff out. I, I still do that too. Like, oh, well, I have a hard time letting go of sticky notes and stuff. Myself, <laughs> but, I mean, that shit is legit because mm -hmm. uh, I was like, you can make a board that no one can see. Yep. How awesome is that? I have yep. one that's labeled vision board. I have, mm -hmm. I mean, Pinterest made magazine cutting so freaking easy. That's yep. the best way to do it. And also I want to go back because I'm, I'm, I'm prompting you, but I'm going to prompt you more directly. You, okay. because my, my podcast, everything about what I do is rerouting. Yeah. And how I got to that like what I wanted to do, I was, I literally, I picked up my best friend where she dropped off her car to get fixed. And I put in the directions where she, she was doing this CrossFit challenge. So I put in the directions to the gym and it said my Australian male voice, uh -huh. obviously told me to take a left. And I did. And it's like, you know, oops, rerouting. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, everything in my life is rerouting all the time. And I just looked at her and I was like, okay, I got it. I got it. But, yeah. You know, yeah. Because literally everything in life is rerouting constantly. We were talking about your relationship with your husband over 10 years and growing up. Mm -hmm. Because it's rerouting. I mean, constantly mm -hmm. there's change that we have to kind of roll with. And you've done that. You've rerouted a lot, even though you've been in school. You did quit a prestigious job mm -hmm. and in programs. Mm -hmm. Publishing. Tell me about that one. Mm, yeah. I mean, academic publishing is like a beast and it's first and it, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. And you don't make any money. Like you literally, they don't pay right. you to do that. You just submit your article and hope for the best, cross your fingers. They tell you to revise it 17 times and you know, 10, 12 months later, it might get published and, and like three people might read it. Yeah. But it's something to put on your resume. Like it's, it's right. currency, it's currency in academia. So yeah, I was doing that. I was playing that game. Right. And then after a while decided I didn't want to. And that was my reroute. It was like, it wasn't just a, it wasn't <laughs> my map quest or navigation telling me like, oh, you're going the wrong direction. It was <laughs> me going like, I want to get out of this car. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this route. Like, this is not what I thought this was going to be. So let's just. Where let's are we going? going. <laughs> yeah. And that's true. And I mean, I don't often actually even use the word rerouting, but it's true that just there's so much change in life, some that we control and some that we don't, and some that we don't realize is happening that you have to kind of constantly figure out what direction you're heading in. So what did you take from everything in school? Are you using your master's in, in what way? And then I want to totally switch gears. Yeah, so that's where the feminist part of the feminist life coaching yeah. comes in. So I am using my background in, in feminist theory and academic feminism to inform um, my coaching practice. And the way I do that is um, through intersectional language and identifying the diverse contexts that we find ourselves in and these these social structures that um, influence how we show up in our lives and taking kind of a... Uh, broad understanding of the social, economic, cultural landscape that we all exist in, um, using tools from feminist theory to then create change in women's lives. So yes, <laughs> I am awesome. using my degrees, um, not in the way that I actually anticipated, but in a way that I like a lot better. Yeah. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. You just kind of revamped all of the stuff that you'd learned into a way that made sense to you. 
How yeah, great and is it's that? in a way that feels like I'm actually making change and not just writing, you know, bullshit esoteric articles and sending them out into the ether, which is how it felt. Right. It's just so currency I can, that looks good. Yeah. And so I can actually like talk to people and talk to humans and like make change in humans' lives. What is that about? <laughs> right. So you launched wildcozytruth.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That the, just to, I'm going to plug right now. Um, is that the best, easiest way to get in touch with you if people want to get in touch with you? Yeah. Wildcozytruth.com is my website. You can learn all about the coaching practice and the book club and the podcast right there. But um, really my favorite medium is Instagram and I'm ah. at wildcozytruth there. Okay. Ooh, I'm going to have to find you like while we're podcasting. Yes. That, you know what? That's one of my, so, okay, let's, Let's jump into some of what you do in coaching because you do a lot of social media. Because mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw weird stuff out. That this is an an interesting interview for me. This is fun. <laughs> it's just a little bit different. We're rerouting it. Um, I think Facebook is gonna be dead. Yeah, I think so too. Oh yay! See, yeah. I don't ever voice that, and so because I I'm an online present and everything I do is digitally nomadic, simply uh-huh. like you, right? Uh-huh. So you think, okay, if you, if you just need Wi-Fi and a device to do internet, you can, I mean, some people do it totally on their phone. I, I'm not there yet, but you know, you can use a tablet or a laptop or whatever. And all you need is an internet mm-hmm. connection and you can be anywhere in the world. So your social media becomes a lot of the way that you connect with people. How are yes. you telling people to, I love Instagram and I love Pinterest, but they're me, they're mine. Yeah. Yeah. But they're the most authentic f- part of me. Yeah. they're really me. Like there's nothing on Pinterest or on Instagram that is not a hundred percent genuinely raw and me. Yeah. Facebook is a little bit different. It's sort of like a, a presence that you're putting out there to gain the right. Compulsory. I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't it's, feel authentic. It's the public, right? Yeah. So, so, so Facebook has gotten so big that it becomes yep. the virtual public and you're expected to be on it and you're expected to participate in the public in a certain way. Whereas Instagram and Pinterest and even Twitter are, are more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The audiences there are more curated to who you are and who you want to follow and who you want to attract. So you're able to show up more fully as yourself in those kinds of communities because they're smaller. Whereas Facebook is just this, it's called, um, it's called the collapse of networks. I think, um, (laughs) going back to my communication roots, Dana Boyd has written a lot about this. Um, Dana Boyd, Alice Marwick, Nancy Bain, these are all the kind of core researchers out of, um, MIT and Microsoft that are doing a lot of this work where the, the audiences, You're, you're, you have different social circles in your lives and they're all collapsing into one on Facebook. Yeah. And yeah, Facebook allows you to, you know, create groups for who you want to share to, but nobody freaking does that because that's like too much work. Yeah. You know, if you didn't yeah. do that from the get go, which I didn't because I was one of the first schools on Facebook until 2004, you know, yeah. like I wasn't setting up that kind of stuff or going back and searching through my 700 friends to, you know, yeah. figure out who's family, who's a cousin, who's do I know from this school and that school and that group. Like it's gotten too big for us to feel comfortable in. Yeah. 
I agree. Well, that was totally like an offshoot. Yeah. So on, <laughs> sorry, but I just, it's not very often. So, but okay. So now I want to dig into something different. Um, you're talking about working with millennials. I'm 47. You're in your mm -hmm. early thirties. Mm -hmm. Um, my oldest child's 26. So I was 21 when she was born. So we're talking about like three different generations, right? Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about sexuality and sensuality. Mm -hmm. um, on your website, um, it's actually under the book club section. So it's a mm -hmm. support group. It's a very interesting book club because it's a support group. It's not a traditional book club like I think, you know, a bunch of women who knit sit around knitting and right, right. the book that we It's um, right. a little bit different, very safe space for women. Talk to me about sexuality and sensuality because your perspective of the change with that compared to my perspective with the change of that is going to be different. And I'd love to have a conversation about that. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, oh, wow. Where do I even start? I know. I don't know. So what, I've, what I've discovered is women love talking about sex, yeah. but they'll only do it or they're more comfortable doing that in groups where they feel safe. And so this might be your best friend. This might be a sister. This might be a stranger, a stranger that you met online that you'll never see again. Mm -hmm. So the community of the book club community is it harkens back to consciousness raising circles of the civil rights movement um, where women could show up, learn about the issues, learn about, you know, am I the only one who does X, Y, and Z and realize that they're not alone. And that's really what the hangups around um, expressing sexuality kind of hinge themselves on is people feel so much shame around it because they're not supposed to like X, Y, and Z because that's not what, that's not what they see on TV or in porn or in their Harlequin romance novels. Like it's not, people are ashamed of it and there's so much shame. And, and honestly, and I'm so grateful for this, this time that we live in right now with the Me Too and Times Up movements where we're actually starting to talk about um, the power dynamics in sex and sexual assault and, um, and in, in the kind of inherent gender hierarchy as well. So the book club uses books about these topics to kind of expand or to start the conversation around the sticky things like, you know, is it okay if I like anal sex? <laughs> right. These are the kinds of conversations that I have, or I want to start, I want to try doing this sex act and I don't know how to bring it up with my partner. And what's neat about my group is you can ask those questions anonymously. I have a form that you can fill out anonymously and then I post the question and everybody else answers it. And there's that, that one level of removal is yeah. safe for them. So they can, and you'll see that they'll just start talking about these things, like talking about things that, I mean, even I'm uncomfortable with, but I'm so grateful that this group is here for other women to see, like, you are not alone. You don't have sex at all. Great. Like there's six other women here that feel that way too. You want to do it in the butt? Great. There's 12 other women that want to do that too. And or that have, or that can share their experience. Or can share their experience. Yeah. So, so we're someone, learning from each other. As someone 47, you know, mm -hmm. we, 
my this generation you had the 70s where it was like the free sex movement which was mm -hmm. that was my mom mm -hmm. and i was a child growing up in that which was very confusing and then in my generation it was like you don't talk about it. you don't talk about rape you don't talk yeah. about being molested you don't talk about saying no um, you don't talk about freaking anything you just yeah. don't talk about it yeah. and god forbid you know the boys were the studs and the girls mm -hmm. were the sluts and i'm like well i want to be a girl that's a stud and yeah. and why am i female but i want it all the time and that's not okay and it was just so that part was confusing just because you're right so i i mean i i have like two best friends and i'm vocal about it. you're my best friend so i'm going to talk about whatever i want yeah <laughs> it wasn't until my absolute best friend got divorced that she had a conversation with me about sex and i was like i didn't even know you ever had it except <laughs> when you got pregnant like right. how have we been best friends for 10 years and i right. really vomit Right. Because it's something on my mind that I want to share and you're my best friend. And it's always been safe to talk to her about it, but it was never reciprocated. Yeah. And I find that so odd. So when she finally opened up, I was like, oh, come to Jesus moment, you know? Yeah, seriously. Please open up. Because when she, yeah. she had been married for 25 years and he was the second person she'd ever slept with. And here she was single in, in her 40s. Right. And I don't know why sex is such a taboo subject because we're all doing it. We're all doing it. Or we all don't want to or whatever. Yeah, but it's so natural, right? It's just like, it's our, it's literally our biology. And it doesn't matter how we're doing it, how, who we're doing it with, what gender we identify as, what they identify as. I can have sex with a woman and still identify as straight, you know? Like, like these are the kind of like weird, uncomfortable questions that come up in safe spaces that won't come up otherwise. I remember going to the doctor. It was this last January. So it was January of 2018. And I had to fill out a form. And I go to a, a place that's very laid back and low key in the community. And I, I love it because of that. And I love my doctor. But literally on this form, it asked about uh, your gender reference. And mm -hmm. I was like, I walked, <laughs> she walked in the room and I go, okay, I don't know how to answer. I kept my paper. I don't know how to answer mm -hmm. this question, literally. Because mm -hmm. I don't even know what all of these choices are. I said, I was mm -hmm. born a woman. I'm still a woman and I like dick mm -hmm. and I'm with so one guy I'm monogamous you're like, a monogamous heterosexual woman yeah right and now I felt like I said am I the minority and she's like kind of you know like <laughs> but I'm like so where's all this information because we're inundated with body image we're inundated with airbrushing we're inundated with we're the most obese country in the nation we're inundated with sexuality and porn is out of control with what it's producing mm-hmm but yet we can't have a normal conversation and I'm in my doctor's office and I don't even know what gender to check, what box to check in my gender anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where I you think know. that Gen Z is that who's behind me. Um, I think they're doing the, the heavy lifting with yeah. sexuality. I, I am so impressed with them and this Tumblr generation that's coming to light and, and all of these terms that they're just like identifying as like, yeah, I'm, you know, pansexual aromantic and I'm queer and it's like okay that's mind-blowing because even as a feminist studies major like I didn't I took I took a queer studies course sure but like I knew a handful of queer women or a gender people and it was it's neat to see how even in 10 years that has shifted and it's continuing oh. to shift and so I think that, rate. <laughs> yeah, and I think that they're more comfortable with these kinds of conversations about identity too, that, um, 
are really, really important. And I'm, I'm excited to see where they go. I think we super, I, I am not going to say that I understand all of it because I mm -hmm. don't, not even, mm -hmm. yeah, I may understand the definition, but I don't understand that identity, mm -hmm. but that's okay. I think we're getting way too hung up on the wrong things and not just letting, like if you're happy with my kids, if you're happy in whatever you're doing, then I'm cool with it. I yeah. don't have to understand it yep. or, or quote, agree with it. Right. I mean, we just get so caught up on different stuff. I don't give a shit. Right. Right. Honestly, but I it's don't. important when you're creating, when you're figuring out who you are. It's important to find yeah. labels that feel right too. So, right. It's like, being able to self-label is super important, especially when there's so so much bullying going on and people like throwing around labels that don't feel. That's right. what I mean. We're just getting caught up on stupid shit that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And you're mm -hmm. in a room with people. Um, who are like, oh God, I finally have someplace I can talk about this. Yeah, exactly. Which is very great. That's very exactly. great. Um, I love that. And I, I just think people get so hung up on not talking about it that, gosh, you're just so hung up, period. Now yeah. I want to, I want to switch gears again, if you don't mind. Of course. You talked to me in your email about anxiety. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So mm -hmm. you've... Yeah. So you've struggled with panic and anxiety for most of your life. Mm -hmm. And then you just had this huge shift. So share with, share with <laughs> so me. How does that feel? So that feels kind of shit. So we're okay right now. I'm guessing you need a lollipop. <laughs> I'm going to well, hug you virtually. Well, no, I imagine. I mean, I know. I don't, I'm not someone who has anxiety, but I have always mm -hmm. been surrounded by people who do. Mm -hmm. And I find it sometimes scary and sometimes intriguing because mm -hmm. I'm on the outside feeling helpless looking in at someone who like I you, you want to help and fix it and you can't always mm -hmm. so that's very difficult mm -hmm. and I know that in transition that triggers it I'm gonna have a son who's autistic and so with his anxiety how his mind works if he didn't know it was for dinner that created anxiety that's a that's that's a big yeah. deal right and just something yeah. a little different so tell me how it manifested in your life as an only child who felt sure. alone a lot Mm -hmm. Take me mm -hmm. through it all. Yeah. Um, so I was officially diagnosed the first year of my PhD program. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's funny. Um, but I, I know I can, looking back, like I know it manifests very early and I can think, I can think back to the fourth grade and feeling these kinds of feelings of just irrational fear and terror and not being able to eat because I was afraid of somebody finding out I did something stupid. You know, I did something quote unquote wrong and I would um, throw up out of these like just nervous stomach. And um, yeah, it's, it's, that's how it manifests. I've seen it, like I said, most of my life. When it came to a head, uh, the first year of my PhD program, it was, it's kind of sad that um, my trigger was my cat. <laughs> when we moved to Chicago, um, we were out in the suburbs and we moved to Chicago. Um, my cat <laughs> was diagnosed with asthma, but we didn't realize like he was having asthma attacks. He just stopped breathing and he would have these coughing fits and every time he would have these coughing fits I felt helpless and out of control like I can't help like what is wrong with you you little kitty I've had him since I was 16 and I just felt like a worthless pile of shit and 
Um, so every time he would have one of these asthma attacks, I would go into a full on panic attack and I would shake head to toe. I wouldn't eat. If I had eaten, I would throw whatever up. I, I just felt like electricity running underneath all of my skin and I couldn't settle down. And I tried meditation and I tried yoga and I tried aromatherapy and massage, <laughs> all of these things. And so I finally ended up at the doctor, um, with a diagnosis and medication and therapy. And, um, I've been doing the same thing for the last six years now. And guess what? My cat is sick again. When we moved, he, um, I mean, he's 16 now, like, of yeah. course he is old. Like, and, and now I have the tools in my toolkit to know like, okay, when he throws up or whenever he's got um, kidney disease, so he throws up a lot. So when he throws up, I don't have to go into a full fledged panic attack. <laughs> I can check in with myself, be really compassionate with myself, but you know, doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it means a Xanax and a nap. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're, I'm glad that you're honest about that. I mean, anxiety yeah. can be debilitating. It is. It is. So for you, you throw up sometimes and you, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, and lately it's been, um, so I, yeah, I feel all my symptoms physically and lately it's been heartburn. That's fun. Like just debilitating heartburn in the middle of the night, like wakes you up, can't get back to sleep, can't do anything about it. Tums don't work. Passive AC doesn't work. The only thing that works is time. And it's the worst. <laughs> well, and it is, it's interesting that you're, to me, that you're, I understand when somebody else is having a panic attack, like your cat's sick. Mm -hmm. For me, that, that helpless feeling, to, I think we can all relate to feeling absolutely mm -hmm. helpless in a situation where you want to fix it and do something and you can't. Yeah. And for me, I just feel helpless and I'm, I, I've learned that when, if you're having a panic attack, all I can do is check in. Is there yeah. anything that I can do? Yeah. And if you shake your head, no, I'm like, then I'm here when you need me. Exactly. And that's what's been helpful. The only thing that's been helpful is somebody saying, I'm going to crawl into this shithole with you. I'm not yeah. going to try to drag you out because that's not going to work. Right. I'm just here with you. Right. That's been so, the most helpful. Were you surprised when you got the diagnosis or was it like all the lights went on? Oh, it was like all the lights went on. It was like, oh, okay. So normal people don't feel this way. Yeah. This isn't how everybody feels hundred percent of the time. This is, God. wait, you're telling me that I can feel, I can feel differently. Like things, everything, getting out of bed doesn't have to be hard. I mean, there was so much. <laughs> Once I started therapy and medication, it was like night and day. Things just felt easier and lighter. And I wasn't expecting that. I didn't know. I didn't know because I didn't, right. I hadn't, I hadn't experienced life any other way. And yeah, still sometimes things get dark and scary and shitty, but. But you, so what, what medication, were you opposed to medication and no. therapy? Not no. at all. Mm -mm. Like that's totally mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. yeah, from, I mean, open. yeah. From, I mean, I'm not opposed to Western medicine or Eastern or some combination. Of right. The two. Um, and I'm try. I'm willing to try it all. And I guess that's the thing is like, if it's going to, I was so, I was in such dire straits. Like I will try anything you give me. You want to give me a blend of Chinese herbs? I will try it. Like you yeah. got some needles. Let's do some acupuncture. Like I was up for anything because I was at my wit's end. I just didn't want to feel that way anymore. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was ready. What tools do you think, do you feel helped you the most? 
regular therapy. I was in therapy three hours a week when I first started and now it's just an hour a week. <laughs> and, um, had really going back. So I do a lot of visualization and going back and healing old wounds because it has manifested so young for me going back and seeing where that comes from and these feelings of loneliness and abandonment and this need for control. Um, I can, I can do work with my inner child to kind of remother her and be there for her. And it sounds kind of woo woo, but it's all rooted in, you know, psychology. Um, and it's really, really been helpful. That's awesome. What was the, did you try different medications? Um, so I've, I've had to up the dosage once, but I've just been on Zoloft the whole time. Um, and then when, uh, all it started to like creep up again and I went back to my doctor who's amazing and she's in Chicago. And so I just like miss her desperately. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but she said, okay, well, let's try upping the dosage a little bit. And she was really good, like checking in with me and calling me. And, and she said, well, and when it gets really bad, when you're having these attacks, like I'm going to give you a little bit of Xanax. If it's something that you feel like you want to do, do it. If it's not, I understand. And she said, just check in. And I think that having a really compassionate doctor in your corner is like the absolute best thing you can do for yourself. Right. Yeah. So that's almost as good as the prescription. It really is. It, or somebody's better to, sometimes. Well, somebody is there to validate you and back you up. Yeah. And say like, yeah, I know. You feel like literally insane right now. Yeah. I can help with that. And for you to finally realize, I mean, you don't know what you don't know. We don't know to ask certain questions. Right, right. And so you never assumed that people felt different than you did. You were just no. like everybody else. And yeah. to, to have somebody say that must have been like a huge load off. Yes. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. my God, I shouldn't feel this way. Thank you. Cause I, I felt, you. yeah. And I felt seen for the first time. Mm. Like somebody was sitting down in that hole or that cave with me and saying like, yeah, this is dark and it sucks here. You don't have to be here. Right. And you going, oh, <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. How does that, that's got to play into the coaching because you have coaching oh, yeah. on your website. Mm -hmm. How much, I mean, I think most of us, most people who are coaches find that niche because it's something that they're super curious about or that they've gone through or a combination of all of those things. Yeah. And so you are able to use your experience as empathy and compassion towards the people you're coaching. Yes. Yeah. So like I use the language of feminist theory, but really I come from experience. So, I mean, we didn't even cover all of it, but I mean, it's, I haven't had it easy. <laughs> Like the interesting part right now, because I'm in it, is having quit the PhD program. But, you know, I was sexually assaulted in my teens and um, uh, my dad wasn't in the picture for a few years. And my mom and I have a really strained relationship. And, you know, I've burned a lot of bridges and made a lot of mistakes and done a lot of things. And I've learned a lot. And I can use those experiences just to be a lighthouse for somebody else and say, like, yeah, you can get through it. I did. And here's, and here's how it could look for you. Um, I've always been really interested in personal development and started working with my first life coach in 2010, I believe. And I really liked the approach. I really liked how 
how coaching differs from therapy because coaching is forward looking and therapy is oftentimes back looking. Um, and I found, I think the combination of the two is everybody needs it. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree. And even when you are a coach, no matter how, in, no matter what you're coaching, when you have that coaching attitude and you're looking forward, like everyone who is a coach should have a coach. Yes. I love my coach. Mm -hmm. And, um, because you need what you're giving out to people. And I mean, you, you know, I have a daughter who wanted to go to hypnotherapy. And when mm -hmm. she found the hypnotherapist, I talked to the, the woman first and said, how did you get into hypnotherapy? Oh, well, I was type A accountant. And I was so stressed out. And like with anxiety, right? Yeah. You're trying anything anybody tells you. And somebody told, suggested hypnotherapy. And I went and it changed my life. Yeah. yeah. So I quit my corporate accounting job. I got you know, certified in hypnotherapy because I want to change people's lives the way mine was. And I'm like, you're the one I want. Yes. Yes. You're the one I want because you have been, you have lived in the trenches. Yes. Oh and my, I just got goosebumps. That is so right. That is so right. If I'm going to interview people to coach me in any way. So mm -hmm. if my daughter's suffering from anxiety and she wants to try hypnotherapy, mm -hmm. when I interview that person. I'm going to want to know you yeah. get her. You, yes. you or me or whoever it is, yes. right? You get yes. it. There's a level of empathy that is so required that not everybody has that muscle to flex. And so being able to demonstrate that, yes, you can flex that muscle and speak that language because you've been there mm -hmm. is just clutch. It's just exactly what somebody needs. And there's going to be a coach for everybody. You just got to find that person. Well, and I love the letters after your name. So if you'd gotten a PhD or, or just using your master's or having a bachelor's, right? There's a tremendous amount of value to having letters out of your name because academically you've gone through and taken the time and effort to mm -hmm. really learn whatever it was you were studying. Mm -hmm. And that's fantastic. But experience, mm -hmm. and when you have both, oh mm -hmm. my God, it's like the best marriage. It's a great mm -hmm. recipe. <laughs> Hope so. And I love that. Well, you hope so. Yeah, my girl, you're doing it. <laughs> so, thank you for sharing about, in, in a pretty raw way, and we could talk sexual assault. I mean, I don't love talking about it because I love that you went through it, but I love that you, you're creating a space for people to discuss things like sexual assault mm -hmm. and that you've come from a place where you totally get it. And even the stuff you don't totally get, you totally get. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not necessarily from your own personal experience, but you're drawing on your personal experiences to understand them. And I've had really deep friendships with people who have gone through shitty things. You know, I sat with my best friend when her mom suddenly died. And I've sat with another friend who went through just horrible infertility treatments and miscarried. And it's, I, yeah, no, I haven't had those experiences myself, but I can sit with you in them. Right. I've witnessed them. And it's not easy. And I don't have, I don't have advice, right? But I have, I know that you'll get through it. That's, that's my approach. And so let's find some tools and some ways to look at this that make it suck a little less. <laughs> right. Because it's going to suck. And here's yeah. the thing. I mean, we all have an a hundred percent success rate at getting through shit. Mm -hmm. Eventually you're going to be on the other side. Now, how we get through it or mm -hmm. what that that's why you want somebody to sit with you while it sucks, right? Yeah. Because getting through it is hard, but you have a hundred percent success at coming out on the other side. For sure. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's a getting through it part. And then you have this toolbox of mm -hmm. things that you can use. Like you had therapy, 
medication, sometimes acupuncture, what mm -hmm. aromatherapy, mm -hmm. having a friend to sit with you. We all have the ability to have the same tools in our toolbox. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just, you know, it's like that recipe you haven't made in a long time. You're like, oh my God, I totally forgot that I used to make caramel popcorn all the time. Uh huh. Uh huh. Like, why haven't I made it in two years? Right. And sometimes we just need a reminder that we have those tools there. And people are like, oh, holy shit, that was there the whole time and I forgot. And once you know something, you can't unknow something. Too. Right. You sometimes need a gentle reminder. You need a reminder, but and it's going to still be there. Store, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing all this with me. Well, this is fun. <laughs> we, we always, podcasters always wing it and don't know what to expect, but it's always, it's always a fun process. This is always great. an adventure. <laughs> I love the adventure. I get lost everywhere I go. Thank God for GPS. I don't know how I travel across country several times before GPS, but my kids know my saying is like, it's, like, it's okay. I've been lost here before. It's okay. I'm stealing that. No, I I'm like, that is my, <laughs> I have a photo. I'm like, it's all right. I've been lost here before. That's awesome. 100% success rate of getting out. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Right? So we just need to remember, it's okay. We've all been lost here before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just need a little nudge. Mm -hmm. So what's the easiest way for people to find you? Yep. Wildcoastytruths.com. You get all information about what it is I do and the different facets of what I do. Um, the Wild Cozy Truth podcast, you can find anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, yeah. um, Search. Google, just, yeah, just Google. <laughs> but your website, I mean, I've been on your website and it's super easy interface to use. It's a great website. All the information's right there. Good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's a so, great interface. So, and, and if you want to come see the fun stuff I'm doing on Instagram. <clears throat> that's at wild cozy truth too. That's my favorite. Okay. Well, I'm definitely going to find that Okay, <laughs> because that's my favorite too. So we get to see our raw selves. Well, I mean, there's a lot of like fun photo shoot kind of things, but, but that's part of who you are. I know. I love that. <laughs> see, it's still, it doesn't matter. It's still my most authentic self. Yes. I am, you know, my the biggest asshole and the biggest whatever whatever's <laughs> happening, I it's there. And I bring the wild and the cozy and the truth and the captions. That's for sure. Good. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Renee. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.